Amen. That's one of my favorite songs. It's one thing to say, you know, when I come to die, I want Jesus. But it's another thing to say in the middle of your life, give me Jesus. I need Jesus now. Thank you for reminding us of that precious promise. Well, if you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Luke... Luke chapter 18. Let me open us again in a word of prayer. Father, our desire this morning is that what takes place here would not be the work of any man. We pray that you would work among us, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts. We need to hear from you. So, Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your truth remain, and let it bear great and abundant fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, in 1972, a rugby team from Uruguay chartered a Fairfield airplane. Fairfield airplane, and the intention was for it to carry them across the Andes Mountain to an exhibition match in nearby Chile. In order to do so, Flight 571 would have to cross the daunting Andes Mountains, which are extremely long and, and quite high. Now, the pilots knew that this, uh, their twin turboprop prop plane had a max ceiling of about 30,000 feet. And so in order to get over the mountain range, they were going to have to not just fly over it, but to fly south, parallel to the famous mountain range, and then cross and turn uh, west by northwest onto a course uh, that would take them to Santiago, Chile. They'd have to go through a pass. Well, the problem was is that because of human error and because of uh, some miscalculations in their course, their plane began to drift ever so slightly, just ever so slightly off course, and they were not at the altitude that they thought. And when when the time came and and the pilots began to turn, they smashed into a cliff, into a peak of the Andes Mountains. The fuselage was ripped apart, and the folks who were seated behind the fuselage, there were 45 on board, all of them perished. And those who were seated in front of the wings, rather, uh, crash-landed at onto a frozen glacier at about 12,000 feet where they struggled to survive. And it was all because the plane was drifting off course. You see, as Christians, we too suffer from the significant and constant danger of drifting off course in our hope of the gospel. At least this is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians. Look here what he says. And speaking of us being presented to, guys, can you turn me down in the monitor a little bit? I've got a lot of feedback up here. Thank you. And speaking of being uh, presented to Christ, Paul says this, "If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not drifting, or you could say not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I was reading this week that there's a sense in which all airplanes or all cars or all boats or all bicycles or motorcycles or whatever your mode of transportation are technically off course 99% of the time. 
right? That makes sense. That's why we need steering wheels. Now, my steering wheel doesn't look like that, uh, but that's why we need steering wheels to make thousands and thousands of constant, tiny corrections in order to avoid catastrophic accidents. Now, the whole point of this series, we're, we're in a series where we're considering the gospel and the implications of the gospel and what that means for our life. And the whole point of this series is to keep us from doing just that. We as a, a church are seeking to grow deeper in our understanding of and in our appreciation of the gospel. And that's not just because we're, we're simple or it's not because we're immature. It's because we don't want to be simple and we don't want to be immature. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that the gospel is actually the power of God for Christians. It is for Christians. And that as we grow in it, that as, that, that as we grow in our understanding and appreciation of the gospel, that's how we actually grow in maturity. You want to grow as a Christian? Grow in your understanding of and appreciation of the gospel. By now, hopefully you're getting more familiar with what we're calling uh, the gospel grid. This chart that I think helps us uh, understand the way this dynamic works out. It illustrates it on some level. And really, this begins, the gospel, real, the gospel grid really begins for us where these two lines diverge. The top line representing our awareness of God's holiness, and then the bottom line with our awareness of our own sinfulness or our own lack of holiness. You see, before you become a Christian, you must have, you can't become a Christian if you don't have some understanding that there's a gap between you and God, that there is, that there is a significant gap. God is holy and you are not. There's a gap. How, how, do, how do we as sinful humans get to God and his holiness? You have to begin by realizing that on some level, you are a sinner, and that sinners are separated from God. And unless something changes, sinners will be separated from God forever. And the only solution to the sin gap, the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What that means is you are instead, instead of trusting in yourself, you're placing your hope and your trust in the life and the death of Christ to make you right with God. But we've said that the Christian life doesn't end there. That's in fact only the beginning of the Christian life. Because as you mature, the more you mature and the more you grow in awareness of God's holiness and the more you grow in the awareness of your own sinfulness, you realize your need increases. So even though you are a Christian, you see that the gap keeps getting bigger. It's not that God is getting more holy. That, that's, that's nonsense. It's not that even that we are getting more sinful. It's just that we are becoming more aware of these things. And so you realize that the cross is actually bridging a bigger gap than you originally realized. So as you grow more and more, you will grow more and more aware and more and more thankful for the work of Christ on the cross. That means you love him more and you will obey him more and honor him more. So in order for us to grow, we need to be constantly growing 
in our awareness of God's holiness, in an awareness of our own sinfulness, and therefore in an appreciation for Christ. Or else we'll be in danger of drifting away from the hope of the gospel, as we just read in Colossians. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said in a very Martin Luther-esque sort of way, he said the following, The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, and it's in it that the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, I don't know who was the first person to say the phrase, beating it into their heads. Maybe it was Martin Luther, but I think that that is a good description of what we're trying to do. We are trying to beat the gospel into our heads so that we would understand the beauty and the precious nature of Christ, our Savior. But we've been talking about how this process is not necessarily fun. It's not necessarily fun. We've been talking about what we call the small gospel. You see, it doesn't seem fun to natural man to, to learn that he's a sinner. And it doesn't feel fun for a Christian to grow in new awareness that we are more sinful than we actually thought. Or even maybe that God is more holy than we thought, because that means we're just further away from him than we thought. You see, all this gets very uncomfortable. It makes us feel very insecure. So we try to fill this gap in other ways. Now, now we very much may still be Christians, but we're not growing. The cross stays the same. It may even shrink in our estimation. And to do this, we employ all sorts of fake Christian-type tactics. And we're going to talk about two of those today, perhaps the most common. We're going to talk about pretending and performing. Pretending and performing. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I'm so glad that you've come. You're welcome here and we're delighted that you have joined us. You're, you're a guest with us. But what, what we're going to do today, it actually may help you understand some of the Christians around you. It may help you understand me and the inconsistencies in, in my life. Because the thing is about, about Christians, you know, so, so many times we may seem hypocritical to you. And the reason for that is because we are still sinners. God is not done with us. He's still working on us. We, we are still changing. And so in order to see this, I want to invite you to look at Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this on uh, page 877 in the Pew Bible that should be uh, in one of the chairs in front of you. Because in this chapter, Luke uh, addresses, or Jesus rather, addresses both of these issues. The first is pretending self-righteousness, and which he starts to address in verse 9. Now, actually, before we read, let me give you two little bits of information. Uh, there are two characters that Jesus talks about in the story that you may not be familiar with. One is a Pharisee, okay? We don't, we don't have Pharisees in, in our culture anymore. So a Pharisee was a, he was a religious leader of the Jews. These were serious minded guys. These were religious nuts, right? They were very concerned with the way that they lived. Most of them had a very large portion of the Old Testament memorized, and they lived their lives according to a very strict Old Testament law. That's the Pharisee. The second person to understand is the tax collector. 
Now, you can't think in terms of an IRS agent. That's not really a, a helpful comparison. A tax collector was the most hated member of Jewish society. They were very powerful and they were very wealthy, all because they had betrayed their own, their own people. They worked, they chose to work for the oppressive Roman government, and in doing so, they took money from their people and lined their own pockets with extra money. They were considered to be the sinners of sinners. They were hated among their people. So those two pieces of information in mind, let's read starting in verse 9. And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pretending we all have a tendency to be just like the Pharisee in this story. You and I tend to pretend that we are better than we really are because we're aware of this gap between God and our actual performance. We pretend. We We aren't resting necessarily in the righteousness of Christ, and the weight of that gap is crushing. It makes us feel profoundly insecure, so what do we do? We pretend. We pretend to be better than we really are. Just like they said in the famous movie, right? We cannot handle the truth about ourselves. So what do we do? We minimize our badness. We minimize our Failures. We try to convince ourselves and others, we try to convince ourselves and others that we're better than we actually are. And the thing is, is that we get very sophisticated about our pretending. We're very, very good at this, and we've developed all sorts of ways to do it, these well-honed tactics. And many of them were the same tactics the Pharisee used in this story. The first thing that we tend to do is we tend to compare a form of pretending, but we tend to compare. Look back down at verse 11. The Pharisee has made the effort to go up to the temple to pray, and what does he do when he gets there? How does he begin his prayer? He thanks God that he is great. Not God himself, right? He immediately compares himself to other people that he sets up in his mind. Look at 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other bad people, right? extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. You see, the Pharisee was comforting himself with the reality or with his perception that he is not as bad as these other people, right? He's, he's just not as bad. 
I was once speaking with a man, and uh, we came to the subject where I, I mentioned something about his critical nature. We were talking about it. It had gotten in, into some trouble. And so we were, we were talking about it together, and he said this to me. Pastor, don't you think I'm better than the gays? Ooh. <laughs> do, you know, do you know anybody like this? No, no be careful. That's a, that's a trick question because we're all like this on some level. When confronted with our own shortcomings, when confronted with our own failures, we look around quickly and try to see and try to think of someone that we think is worse than us and then deflect the tension away from ourselves to them, right? That's, that's the tactic. We always set up softball comparisons, right? I mean, who cares if you're better than an extortioner or an adulteress, right? That, that's not the standard. God is the standard. His law is the standard. And so in our insecurity, we compare ourselves to others and try to insulate ourselves from the truth that we're more sinful than we thought. And what that means is our gospel is small and we don't grow. We don't grow. But there's another tactic that we use, denial or denying, right? And this is the same, this has been around since Adam and Eve, one of the original tactics to respond to confrontation of sin. And we see it again in verse 11. When the Pharisee said, I thank you that I'm not like other men, he's purely living in denial. Now, surely there are some ways that he was different from folks who committed these sins openly and blatantly. But was that really true about him? Had he really never been dishonest? Had he never been unjust or impure? Had he really never acted in his own interest at the expense of someone else? You see, denial minimizes our sin by saying, at least I don't do fill in the blank. Right? At least I don't do. Have you ever heard someone say at the beginning of a sentence, hey, look, I'm not going to lie to you. And then they tell you something bad. I'm like, well, thanks for not lying to me, but I still heard what you just said, right? It's like, hey, I'm not as bad as a liar, even though I did X, right? I'm not going to lie to you, Jasmine does, right? And, and so it's, it's denial, right? We're really just lying to ourselves. We have a tendency to pick our own sin lists, right? Perhaps you've read this text, in Galatians chapter 5, I call this one of the sin lists, right? You've seen some of the big sin lists in the New Testament. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, right? And he goes, he goes on and on. Now, here's what we tend to do. We tend to say, oh, Idolatry, I don't have a Buddha on my mantle. Or sorcery, anybody struggling with sorcery, maybe? Drunkenness, maybe? Or what about, I mean, orgies, right? We, we see some of the big sins and we say, hey, I don't do that, right? And so we tend to ignore these sins. Sexual immorality, th these are all in the same text, side by side. Impurity, strife. Do you have any broken relationships? Are you struggling to get along with someone, right? Dissensions, anger? He's hitting much closer to home. 
Sometimes I hear Christians talk about how homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. But the Bible, and that is true, but the Bible says so is lying. It says that in Proverbs chapter 22. You see, we don't get to pick our own sin lists. We don't get to read the Bible with an eraser. We don't get to pick and choose. Denial, denying sins in our life is a form of pretending, and it tends, and what it does is it actually minimizes the gospel by saying we don't need that great of a Savior. But there's another, another thing we struggle with, false righteousness, another type of pretending. After the Pharisee was comparing himself to the tax collector, and after he enjoyed his you know, delusional state of denial, look what else he did. He lists off all the great stuff about himself, right? He lists off all his good deeds. And that's what false righteousness does. Hey, look at all the good stuff I've done. And let me tell you, I don't care how much you volunteer here at the church, though we appreciate it, right? I don't care how many children you sponsor. This guy, this Pharisee's got you beat. Look at verse 11. He fasted twice a week. Now, the law, the Old Testament law said to fast once a week, and he doubled it, right? He doubled it. He did twice what was required of him, and he was quite proud of it. He paid a 10% tithe on all of his income. And can you imagine if I preached only on fasting and tithing today? Everybody would be kind of squirming, right? right, Two things that are hard. These are things that very religious people do, right? And he's doing it significantly. This guy has kept the law and then some, and he is very proud of it. What, which shows us that he, he didn't do it for God. He did it for himself, right? He, he did it for himself. He did it to get a leg up on others. And this helps us understand what's going on in this tendency to pretend. We can get at the common denominator behind all of our pretending tactics by asking ourselves a question. What gives you a sense of spiritual credibility? What gives you a personal sense of spiritual credibility? Another way to put it is, what makes you feel spiritually good about yourself? Is it your church attendance? Is it the fact that you're not as bad as your neighbor who voted for Hillary? Is it your Bible reading plan? Or that place that you enjoy in front of the Sunday school class? You see, that's all spin. We've been hearing a lot about the credibility of the media recently, and that's a word that's used a lot in the media is spin, taking what is true and spinning it to look different, right? And that's what we tend to do. But our comparing, our denial, our false righteousness, it's all just spin. It's just putting lipstick on the pig, right? It's still just a pig with lipstick, which is a little bit weirder than a pig without lipstick, right? It it looks even worse. Imagine right now, imagine if we stopped and I was somehow able to put up on the screen a comprehensive list of every single thought you had this week. Every word you said, every URL website that you visited, every TV show that you watched, 
every thought that you entertained, right? Imagine if I put that up on the screen in front of, in front of everybody so that everybody in this room could see what you had thought of this week. How would you feel? In that moment, you're probably not thinking about the terrorists that we saw on the news recently, right? You're, you're probably not doing that. We probably wouldn't be comparing ourselves. We would be shrinking fast. We would be getting as far behind anything we could because we would not want people to see us. The cross totally exposes us. You see, deep down, we know that we are pretenders. Deep down, we are terrified of being exposed, but the cross totally exposes us. That's why the tax collector went home justified. Look down at verse 13. He totally owned his sin. Standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And according to Jesus, who was it that went home justified? Who went home right with God? You see, our pretending keeps us from growing in the gospel. Our pretending keeps us from seeing that we have a need for Christ. Many of us would say, yes, I have a need for Christ, kind of big picture, but we don't function like that on a day-to-day basis. You see, it's not until we fully own our identity as sinners with no excuses that we are made right with God. It's not until we are willing to be exposed and corrected. It's not until we're willing to admit specific sins to God and to others around us that we will begin to see how infinitely valuable and big the cross of Jesus Christ is. You see, I think one of the questions for us here, one of the, one of the key questions is, what makes you feel spiritually good about yourself? What makes you feel spiritually good about yourself? And I think one of the best ways that we can see what's going on in our hearts is how do you respond when someone comes and talks to you about your sin? How do you respond? That, that shows you. How do you respond when someone criticizes you? Do you defend Do you deflect? Do you lash out and criticize them? Do you immediately deny? Do you list off all the things you're doing right? Or do you list off all the things that someone else is doing wrong, right? That's a sign that you're more like the Pharisee than the tax collector. And that you, like me, need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pretending. But pretending isn't the only thing that minimizes the gospel and keeps us from growing. We also use performance. Performance. That is, we minimize God's standard to make it more accessible, to make it easier to attain. When I was in middle school and high school, I fancied myself a basketball player. And me and my buddies would do this on the basketball court, right? Not during a game, but, you know, after practice or something. Even though we played our games on, you know, 10-foot basketball goals with a regulation men's basketball uh, size ball, when sometimes after practice, we'd lower the goals, right? Nine feet. It's much easier to dunk on a nine-foot goal than a 10-foot goal. Eight feet. (laughs) 
six feet, right? We'd, we'd lower them down, and, and then we would do the dunks that we saw the guys on TV doing, right? We'd have our own dunk competitions. I still couldn't do a 360 dunk on any size basketball goal. It's so incredibly hard, right? But it was pitiful. We would be pitiful. We would even try to film our dunks and make highlight reels. Not kidding. But what we would do is we would strategically set up the camera so that you wouldn't notice that the basketball goal was only eight feet, eight feet tall, right? I, I'd even use a girl's basketball sometimes because I couldn't palm the men's ball quite, quite as easily. And you see, I looked ridiculous when I was trying to dunk on a 10-foot goal with a men's ball. And I don't like looking ridiculous. I still don't like looking ridiculous. I wanted to look good. So I would lower the goal, I'd get a smaller ball, and then I would try to do better. You see, I couldn't perform. I couldn't measure up. And so I lowered the standard. And that's the dynamic behind our sinful tendency to perform. To perform. We, we can't measure up. Right? Remember, it's a really unpleasant experience to, to grow in an awareness of God's holiness in the sense that you realize, wow, I'm not like that at all. He is so different than me. It makes us feel so small. It makes us feel so short, so insecure. So we try to compensate by performing, by trying to earn his approval, and that's exactly what we see happening in the next story that Jesus tells, or that takes place down in verse 18. This is the story of the rich young ruler, a well-known text that you may be familiar with. Let me read this for us, starting in verse 18. I'll just read part of it. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Let's, let's pause and think about the rich young ruler for a moment. There's many things we could say about this passage, but let's think about it for a moment. The rich young ruler was a successful man in the eyes of the world. He was a performer. You have to be a performer on some level to be successful in the world. That's true because that's why I'm not in the NBA, because the NBA values basketball performance, and I can't cut it, right? Couldn't even cut it in high school, but I'm, I'm mostly over that. The world values performers, and he was a performer. Socially, he was a leader among his peers. He was popular. He was a ruler, right? He, he had developed the leadership skills to have influence on other people, and other people looked to him, and they trusted him, and they, they followed him. Financially, he was successful. He was rich. The story goes on to say that he was very rich, right? He had been successful in business. He had mastered the skills that were necessary to, to make a tremendous amount of money, and he had made it financially. 
He was also morally successful. He was a good guy. This was the dream guy to bring home to mom and dad, right? He was a good guy. He, he, not only did he know the basics of the law, but he kept them, apparently, since he was 12. I don't know what his teenage years were like, but apparently he thought he had kept them since he was 12, down to the T. But what's interesting about this man is that he was still deeply troubled. He still wasn't satisfied. He still wasn't happy. He had all of the trappings of a good life, and he still was unsatisfied. I never really noticed it before, that when you're hoping in yourself, when, when you're focusing on performing, you will never get there, and it leads to a deeply unsatisfying life. Why else would he have come to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? In all of his success, in all of his religion, he still felt vulnerable and empty. And his question betrays what was going on in his heart. What must I do? You see, the rich young ruler was not interested in Jesus. He he didn't really care about a relationship with the Lord. He didn't want to follow him, right? He was just interested in the perks. He was interested in what religion could offer him. And that's what was behind the question. He wanted to know, how can I put God in my debt? How can I make God owe me? And he'd been trying to do that. He had minimized God's law. He had lowered the goal low enough to where he could dunk. He kept a few do's and don'ts. All of these I've kept for my youth, he says. And Jesus saw exactly what was going on. And so he cut straight to the heart of the problem, which is what Jesus always does. He always sees past our mask. He always sees past it. Look what he said in verse 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus was not impressed with his performance. Right? He was not impressed with an, a dunk on an eight-foot goal. Jesus is not and was not after outward appearances. He's not primarily about behavior. He's after your heart. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to behave. He wants you to love him, to, to worship him. He wants everything. Jesus is after your heart. And it was clear that the rich young ruler wasn't interested in this. That was a price that was too high to pay. He had not followed the first commandment of loving the Lord with all of his heart. He didn't love Christ. He didn't worship Christ. He didn't want to be with Christ. He loved and worshiped what? His money, his stuff, his success. That's why verse 23 tells us that he went away very, very sad. The rich young ruler was not in a worship relationship with Jesus Christ. He was in a worship relationship with his wealth, and he wouldn't part from it. You see, the rich young ruler had his spiritual life all planned out. He, he thought he had it sorted out. Here's, here's, his, here's his thought process. I'll be good, God, but you be good to me. All right? I'll, I'll be good if you give me stuff. I'll obey you, and I'll love you if you bless me. But don't mess with my stuff. 
Don't mess with my treasure. Don't mess with my health. Don't mess with my family or my finances or my relationships. Don't mess with my fishing boat or my hobbies. Don't mess with that stuff. I'll perform if you perform, right? I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. But if you don't pay up, God, if you don't give me what I deserve, I'm gone. If you don't make my life sufficiently easy, I'm gone. You see, this is why so many people walk away from God when things get hard. When things go bad in their life, their view of God crumbles and they leave the faith. How dare you let her get sick? I've obeyed you and this is how you repay me? They think God owes them. They think God is in their debt for their good behavior. How dare you let my business go under? Don't you know what I've done for you? There's a flip side to this insecurity, right? There's a performance side where we're doing, we think we're doing okay, but what about when we fail? What about when we're not rich and not morally good and not successful and, you know, and not a leader? Sure, sometimes we feel pretty good about our performance. Sometimes we feel pretty good about our behavior. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we fall? You see, for the one who places his security in acceptance through his performance, this is where things get really dark. This is where depression sets in. This can lead to feelings of despair and perhaps even depression. And I really think this was a significant part of my story. This is a major part of my testimony really until about six years ago. You see, I wanted a good relationship with God. I really did. I wanted a good relationship with God, so I was trying to behave. I wasn't perfect. I knew that, right? I never would have said that I was, I was perfect, but I was better than most, I thought, right? I would have thought I was better than most of you, I, I thought, and you see, I related to God and I related to everyone else on that basis. Now, I certainly thought I was better than people who didn't go to church, and, and I really thought I was better than most people who went to church. I had been to seminary, right? I had read books, right? I had a quiet time every day for however many years, right? You see, I thought that since I had my act together, that God was happy with me, that God was satisfied with me. But there's a problem actually a lot of problems. I sinned all the time. Every time that I failed, whenever I messed up, listen church, I thought God was mad at me. I thought he was mad at me. Whenever I would trip and fall into some sin, a sin that was actually on my sin list because, right, we, we have our sin list, I'd feel ashamed and I'd, I'd hide from God. I was deeply depressed because I couldn't dunk, right? I couldn't perform even on my eight-foot goal. This is the core of the performance mindset. I wanted so badly to give God a reason to love me. I wanted so badly for him to like me on my own merit. And so I worked so hard to obey. I wanted to contribute something to deflect his holy displeasure. I wanted to just contribute a little bit to my salvation. And so all of my life was like running on a treadmill where I would constantly try to live up, to keep up with God's pace and what I thought his expectations were. But here's what would happen. 
Whenever I succeeded, I was very proud. And whenever I failed, I was depressed and in despair. All because I thought that my acceptance came when I performed well for God. All because I thought that my acceptance came when I performed well for God. I was hoping in my ability and my performance instead of Christ's performance. Now, I never would have said it like that, right? And you probably wouldn't have noticed if you watched me. You probably wouldn't have noticed that. In fact, I've never met an evangelical Christian who would say anything like that. But that's how I was living. I still trusted in Christ. I was a believer in Jesus Christ. I knew that I needed the cross. I knew that I needed Christ to bridge the gap and to get me to heaven. But I thought that I still needed to perform in order to keep God's approval. Here's, here's how I think that it was working. I needed the cross, but I also wanted to stack up my good deeds to make up the distance. I tried to add to the cross. I would perform to add my good deeds so I could add a little bit to Christ's work. You see, I think the key question here, the, the key way to tell if you're struggling with falling into a small gospel, performance-minded mindset, ask yourself this question. As God thinks about you right now, what kind of expression is on his face? How does God feel about you right now? And why does he feel like that? If you really want to know the answer, think back on the last month and think about the worst thing that you've done. The worst thing you've looked at or the worst thing you've said or the biggest fight you've gotten into, right? Whatever to think about that. In that moment, right after that, how does God feel about you in that moment? You see, if I could explain the gospel to you as simply as possible, I'd say that it has two main components. It's what I read earlier. When Jesus came at the beginning of his ministry, he proclaimed the gospel, and it had two components. He came saying, the time, he's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? Repent and believe. Those are the two core components of the gospel. And remember, the whole point of what we've been saying the last couple weeks is the gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's especially for Christians, which means that we need to hear, repent and believe, no matter how long you have walked with Christ, no matter how good you think you're doing. You see, repentance means that we are trying to it's what we do for this, this bottom half. We are confessing. We are admitting our sin. We're admitting our lack of holiness. It's an acknowledgement that we are sinners. Oftentimes, I put it like this. I'll say that, that repentance or confession, it's, it's agreeing with God about what he says about you. It's agreeing with what he has said about you on the cross and through his law. Let me explain. When I say that you're agreeing with what God has said about you on the cross, that means you are agreeing that your sin is so bad and so significant and so major that it led to a crucifixion, that it should have been you, that you know that you're admitting, you willingly admit that I should have been on that cross 
And you're not going to defend it. You're not going to deny it. You're not going to compare yourself to the other guys on the cross, right? You're admitting that should have been me. I have no, no other explanation or complaint. That should have been me. And you see, that means that we have to see how bad our sin is, right? That's how that bottom line goes down. When we see how bad our sin is, what happens? We don't want to do it anymore, right? Have you ever smelled throw up? That's why you don't want to eat it, right? When, we, when you see sin like that, it repulses you and you move away from it. That's what confession and repentance is. And you see, when you confess and acknowledge your sin, then you have to stop pretending. Pretending is opposite of confession. It's, in, it's the opposite of admitting your struggles. You see, instead, as you grow... As you grow, you continually admit your need. You're continually admitting, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. You're continually admitting and you realize, I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to pretend anymore. Christ has already exposed me and how bad I am. And so I admit, I admit I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So when I sin, I don't need to hide it because I, I, already, I already know this. This is the declaration of my life that I've fallen short. But the other side of this is trusting or believing in the gospel. It's placing our confidence in Christ. You see, when we place our trust in Christ, that means we are shifting our confidence from ourselves to him. That means we are realizing that in all of our best performances, all of our best deeds, they're nothing more than filthy rags. It means that in our best moments, we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. You cannot do anything to make, you, to make God love you more. And you can't do anything to make God love you less. You cannot contribute to God's approval. You're totally trusting in Christ to bridge the gap between your sin and God's law. You don't have to pretend anymore. And you don't have to perform anymore because Jesus Christ performed for us and he's done all that we need to gain the approval of God. This is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you close with me in prayer as we move into a time of invitation? Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and remind us, help us to see